Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We are very excited about our subject today. Alex, who have we got? We have got, I'm sorry, this is one of these ones where we're re-recording because my computer ate the recording. So again, we have got the lovely Freya Gowley, who is a historian and lecturer at the University of Derby, primarily an art historian, but she has a fantastic book coming out at the beginning of next year that's an offshoot of that called Domestic Space in Britain, 1750 to 1840, which looks at materiality, sociability and emotion. Uh, so, but basically we're talking about the history of the home, aren't we? Freya, how did you get onto this? Hi, thanks for, thanks for having me. And um, yeah, I'm a kind of an art historian that doesn't look at kind of the stuff that art historians normally look at, so paintings and sculpture and that yeah. kind of stuff. I'm, I'm kind of interested in the everyday and how we might think about that. So I, how did I come to this is a good question. Well, when I started my PhD, as I think is standard for when you do your PhD, you think you're going to do something and then you end up doing something completely different. Um and I was on holiday just before I started the PhD and I was in Devon and there was this house nearby and I was like, oh, I should probably go to this house. It's an 18th century house. It sounds really interesting. And so you made my mum kind of take me. And um, it was Alla Ronde, which is in Exmouth in Devon. It's a National Trust property. And it's this incredible 16-sided house, uh, which was lived in by Jane and Mary Parmenter, two cousins um, who became independently wealthy after both of their parents died. They go on this large grand tour around Europe for around um, six years, which is super unusual for women at the time, not only to go on their own, but to go for that length of time. And then they come back to Devon and they build this incredible house. And when they're in there, they decorate it with all the shell and featherwork interiors, so really ornate spaces, completely bonkers. Um, and when I went, I was just completely blown away by the space, the, not only the decoration, but also the, the fact that they lived together for the rest of their life. So I get back from a tour in the 1790s, and then they lived together in the house until... Uh, well, Jane dies in 1811 and then Mary dies in 1849, so for quite a long time. And I was just fascinated by how the house kind of reflected their social and emotional relationships. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of how I got started looking at this and it just kind of spiraled up from there and I was interested in finding out all about different people's houses in the past and how that reflected their emotional lives it's kind mad of, isn't it it's like historianing at its best where you innocently go on a day out and end up with like a five-year project on your hands yes i find that happens way too often so now i'm like oh, well book six will be about this thing i've randomly stumbled across yeah i know i'm like well i think i'll live long enough to do all of the book ideas i now have providing nothing awful happens to me i'm sort of set for the next 20 25 <laughs> years of work good to have ideas yeah <laughs> Except for coronavirus, because coronavirus halts all the research. Oh, coronavirus can officially do one now. I don't know how you guys feel, but I am just done. Yes, I am feeling similar. <laughs> but we'll get onto that in a bit because there's some correlation, isn't there? But Alina, start us off. 
So what is it about the 18th and early 19th centuries that make the home particularly emotional? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of self-evident that the home was an emotional space. Um, so it seems kind of strange to be interrogating that. But as an art historian, what I'm interested in is how the way that the home is decorated, the objects that we have in the space of the home or um, the, the things that we collect, how those things communicate that social and emotional function. Um, in the 18th century, there's a number of key changes that happen that make the home a more sentimental space. Um, not least the fact that in the 18th century, there's what historians have called a kind of consumer revolution, which basically means that there's more stuff available, available to more people than ever before and across different classes as well. So there's just more stuff in the home at this time. Um, and there's also this kind of rise of sentimentality. So, um, and we see this a lot in kind of uh, Austin and stuff like that, but there's a rise in people performing their kind of sentimental selves. So you might think about women who swoon or kind of weep performatively, but another way of kind of performing that you were in touch, that you were a kind of man or woman of feeling, um, was buying material goods, which um, relate to kind of mourning or the expression of emotion. So a thing you might get is like a little patch box, which says you give to your friend and says like, I love you, or in like a little, maybe a rhyme or something like that. So there's this, these two kind of key things. So there's just more stuff, but there's also this kind of rise of sentimentalism, which means that there's more emotional stuff available. Um, this is also a time when terms like the keepsake is used for the first time. So you can kind of see how emotions and objects become kind of intertwined at this time. Brilliantly. It, it just seems to escalate till you get to Queen Mary, who was the absolute empress of clutter. Um, <laughs> and just took like with the photo frames and the like little ornaments and apparently George V's sisters were like it as well with just little miniature animals everywhere and stuff that sort of reaches mania levels doesn't it yeah yeah over the course of the kind of following centuries it becomes a real kind of clutter everywhere lots of objects in the home it's not so bad in the 18th century but certainly some of the people I look at are kind of getting to that point Let's talk about some of them because um, there's obviously you would would be sentimentally attached to that first house that set you off on this path and and basically ruined your life, which because uh, <laughs> it made you obsessed. But tell us about some of the other case studies in the book because you look at some particular houses. Yeah, so the the book is kind of each chapter is a different case study. Um, one of the other ones that is again kind of one which I stumbled across is um, Plasnoeth in uh, Langochlin in North Wales, and um, I was. That's kind of very near to where I grew up in Chester. So again, I think I was home at one point and my mum was like, oh, let's go to Plasnoeth. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that would be cool. I think it might be good for the PhD. Um, and again, it was a really wonderful space. It's lived, it was uh, inhabited by two women, um, Eleanor Butler and Sarah Ponsonby, who were both kind of genteel Irish uh, women um, who became extremely close friends. Um, and uh, we think they had a more intimate relationship than that. They're often called kind of the first lesbians um which is a bit of a misnomer but you know what i mean um and uh, they leave ireland and they escape the kind of planned marriages that their parents want them to go into and they move to uh, to wales and they live together at plasnoeth and like alarond which is the shell um cottage that i mentioned earlier um they completely kind of cover the space with um bits of stained glass or um fragments of ancient kind of welsh um 
uh, wooden carvings. So it's a really interesting space from an aesthetic perspective. But part of the reason I'm interested in it is because actually a lot of the stained glass that they use to ornament the windows is given to them by their friends. So I'm interested in how the, the kind of active gift giving um, shapes the space of the home as well. So local landowners give them um, stained glass from uh, their houses when they redecorate. So it's a really kind of interesting space. Um, another house I look at is, um, interestingly, John Wilkes, who is a, was a famous politician in the 18th century. He was a kind of famous leak. He was often considered to be um, dangerous and of poor repute. But I'm interested in his holiday cottage on the Isle of Wight, um, which he uh, sort of acquires quite late in the century and he uses it basically as a way of completely changing his reputation so when he's there he presents himself as this sociable and refined gentleman um, and basically he uses the house to completely change uh, this kind of really disreputable reputation that he has uh, when he's in politics and then when he becomes uh, mayor of London as an older man he is in this very refined space of the home and he entertains guests there and um, he even has gazebos where he hosts these um, parties. So you can see how uh, the sociable kind of the sociable nature of that space really transforms his reputation. Outstandingly, this is, brings us on to so the idea of um, presenting all this stuff for other people to look at. And this just reminds me of Pride and Prejudice, where they rock up at Mr. Darcy's house, like not even really knowing him that well. They're like, oh, we are an acquaintance, as if we bumped into him once. Um, and they want a tour of his house. And this, to me, is inherently creepy. But this is standard, isn't it? Yeah, by this point um, in history, although it seems completely alien to us and, and actually I would hate it because I refuse to let anyone into my house unless it's extremely tidy. Yeah, I'd be um, like, get lost. <laughs> no, you're not looking at my book collection. Who are you? <laughs> and um, But yeah, the 18th century, this is a time when the house, although which we think of as being a very private space normally, um, the boundaries between kind of public and private when it comes to the home become very blurred. And this is because of the rise of domestic visiting um, and domestic tourism. And so you go around people's houses who you might know a bit or you might know via an acquaintance um, or even more broadly you might not know at all and you kind of look around maybe not around the whole house but you'd at least get to see some of the rooms a bit like country house visiting today this is really where that kicks off um, and so we have records of things like Wilkes for example has a visitor book where you can see um, people who get logged and, he, and the gazebos that he puts up in the garden of that house are also to kind of accommodate this wave of tourists who are all really intrigued to see him on the Isle of Wight because he does have this kind of uh, wild reputation when he's younger. Um, so, yeah, it's a really interesting time for thinking about the home and how people kind of start judging each other based on what they have in the home. So another one of the case studies in my book is uh, Caroline Libby Powis, who is a travel writer, essentially, and she makes these um, journals and diaries where she records her domestic tourism. And she's often really judgy. <laughs> so she'll kind of talk about strange people and their strange houses. So she makes assumptions based on the way your houses look and um, that she kind of casts aspersions onto people's characters because of that. I wanted a visitor book. I've always wanted a visitor book. But can you imagine one in Corona land, guys? It would be like, how many Hermes delivery people can you get to sign your visitor book before you just start to look really sad? Or Amazon. 
Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, I just, I remember, so you know Pride and Prejudice, the 90s one. Um, like, it's, I remember being booted out of the room or told to shut up and watching Silence because my mum was obsessed with Colin Firth. And there was that scene, wasn't there, where he, he comes home innocently, dives in the pond, comes out soaking wet and turns up on his doorstep and there's some weirdo in his house. And I just, the whole domestic tourism thing, I think now it's very regulated. They're like, National Trust let you in, you pay, there's a tea room. But yeah, the idea of just, being in someone's house when they're not around I don't know yeah, I'd like it that's only because you're nosy and you'd want to do it to other people yeah totally I'd want to go and see what other people look like what their houses look like what they did you know their furniture get some decorating ideas you know yeah it is fascinating because I think we can tell so much uh, from about a person by going and looking at their house and that's kind of what the whole book is about <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So why do you focus on lesser well-known homes rather than, you know, these grand country houses that we all want to go and see? Yeah, and I really like those grand country houses too. And in fairness, there's a lot of really great studies already out there on the country house. So, um in a way that some of that work has already been done. Um, but I tend to kind of focus on more intimate spaces and um, forms of encounter. And I guess it kind of relates to what I was saying earlier when I was saying about being an art historian that's not necessarily interested in um, sculpture or kind of fine art history. I'm kind of interested in objects that tend to fall outside of those categories. So like when I mentioned about the ladies of Langoughlin, their house in Plasnoeth in North Wales, is you know, of stained glass or these random bits of um, Welsh um, carving. And the gifts that they give each other is often not stuff that art historians normally look at. I mean, one of the gifts that, or two of the gifts that they receive is actually a cow. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I'm looking... Look at my cow. <laughs> yeah, their cow, uh, their friend sends them a cow, I think from quite a distance, and it comes with a little um, a ribbon and a note on its um, horn. It's like a really wonderful story. Oh. Um, <laughs> I feel like, what am I supposed to do with this? Well, I think they kept it. They had like a whole kind of menagerie of... Ah, uh, okay. Which was nice. But um, So yeah, I'm kind of interested in, actually, if you move beyond these kind of rigid categories of what art is and what art historians are interested in, you find histories and stories that you wouldn't normally come across. So, uh, and, you know, plus no way to the home of ladies of Langoughlin, if you were only interested in kind of high art, you would miss their wonderful relationship um, and their 
intense friendship and romantic connection. Um, so for me, looking kind of beyond those categories about what stories are there and what can I find out about them? So you specifically look at emotion and how this comes into play. So what can you learn about people's emotions from the past? Because so my pet hate is when you pick up a biography and they don't really know what someone was thinking and will say, well, we can assume he wasn't very happy or we should just suppose that he didn't like his sister. And I'm like, no, because once it's gone, it's gone. So how are you using those objects to recreate the past? This is such an important question. And obviously, as you say, it's an issue that plagues historians in general. Um, and it's an issue for me, 100%. Um, a lot of the things that I talk about in the book are lost. So whether that is the house itself might be lost. So Wilkes House on the Isle of Wight no longer exists. I think it's just part of the high street now. Oh, um, no. I know. And it's a blue plaque, but that's it. Um, and often the objects that maybe people are talking about as being particularly meaningful to them are lost. Um or, you know, the emotions themselves are lost. You know, emotions are, you know, fleeting. They don't have any kind of tangible material form. So it's a real kind of excavation process as a historian. You need to do a lot of kind of careful, reconstructive work. But luckily, there's lots of evidence that does survive. Um, at Alla Ronde, the house and its decoration has survived remarkably well, although there was a really extensive textural archive that was moved to um, Exeter for safekeeping. Sadly, that was in um, World War Two, and Exeter was really heavily bombed by the Luftwaffe. So um, that doesn't survive, sadly. Um, but uh, we, so we can look at different kinds of contemporary decorative craft practices to try and situate that within its context. Um, but even when the objects themselves don't survive, it's useful because the 18th century is really a period where people start writing more journals and diaries and letters than ever before. So they, they're basically obsessive kind of self-chroniclers. Um, You've got the rise in literacy, haven't you, which I, I'm guessing is brilliant for sources for you. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it really ties in nicely with that. And also just this, people are just interested in writing kind of more biographically about themselves than ever before. So um, Caroline Lee Powers, who's the person I mentioned earlier, who's the kind of travel writer, you know, she has this really prodigious output of um, journals and um, diaries. So she records all of her tours around Britain um, in great detail. And so we get a real sense from that kind of literature um, of how she felt, what she thought, and um, and how that related directly to the houses. Um, also, there's a lot of descriptive texts that are published, basically like travel guides um, now. So you get kind of... Uh, blah blah blah's guide to touring the Isle of Wight and so always you get a description of Wilkes's cottage on that in those kinds of guides to the Isle of Wight from that time because it was such a strange kind of attraction for a lot of people and so because there's although the house doesn't survive there's so much kind of written about him at the time being on the Isle of Wight um, that we can see how important that home is within histories of of Wilkes himself and so we can kind of start to unpack um, what's what was happening there and what people thought of him um, from that. So even though the house itself is lost, we still have some kind of form of evidence. So it's about kind of tying up those loose ends and trying to extrapolate from that. You mentioned the cow. Have <laughs> you come across any other like interesting or crazy objects? Um, let me think. The weirdest object that I have looked at. Well, a uh, Part of this kind of culture of expressing emotions um, through material objects often relates to things like hair work um, and so or ha- pieces of hair that are clipped from the body because obviously hair survives much longer than the rest of the body. Um, so it's kind of 
becomes a symbol in the 18th and 19th centuries of um, of mourning and the expression of emotion. So one thing I did find once when I was looking through a pocketbook um, in an archive somewhere was a kind of plait of hair that was all twisted together and it was tucked into the pocket and it fell out into my lap, <laughs> um, which wasn't a very pleasant experience, but I kind of tucked it back away and I told the archivist, I was like, you should probably know there's a bit of hair in that so um because it wasn't listed in the catalogue so yeah you do come across some gross things and if you if you don't like the idea of touching um historic hair that's just in your lap then you might this job might not be for you <laughs> I have to ask as well. So I mentioned Queen Mary. She was a nightmare for going around to people's houses and looking at their clutter and going, "Oh, I love that." And then you were supposed to obviously go, "Oh, have it, Your Majesty." What if you most <laughs> wanted to shove in your handbag in one of your visits? Yeah, she did this all the time. People used to hide their favourite stuff when she went round. It was hilarious. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, do we ask them what was my favourite object? Yeah, what would you have wanted to shove in your handbag if you could get away with it? Um, well, this is completely unshovable in my handbag, but there is a table at our rond, um, which is based on specimen tables, which you used to get on the grand tour. So, it, and it would have like specimens of different kinds of marble and that kind of thing. Um, but Alaron, Alaron, they make their own version of this and it's covered with shells. Um, from the shores of Devon's beaches, which is where they live, as well as objects that they collect on the Grand Tour, like little micro-mosaics. And then in the centre of the table is a plaque which reads, Life shall triumph over death. So it's a kind of mourning object. And they make that in part to kind of commemorate the death of Jane's sister, Elizabeth. And she goes with them on the Grand Tour, but then she dies right after they get back. So it's, it's an incredibly evocative object that combines narratives of being at home in Devon, but going away, and then the loss of uh, of Elizabeth Parmenter from this really tightly bound um, circle of women at Alaron. So it's just such an interesting object, and I'm always writing about it in various publications and stuff. And I, I I would just love to own it. I can't think of anything else I would want. And more. now have... it's much too big for a handbag. Yeah, I have a hilarious, hilarious vision of you now trying to make off carrying a table. <laughs> I think sadly that would ruin my career, but yeah, if it ever comes up at auction, I will eye it, uh, yeah, uh, gleefully. Give everything away to own it. Yeah. Alright, I'm going to ask, and you, as a PhD person, you won't be offended by this question. Some people can be like, what a cow. Uh, why does it matter? Why is it important to think about the emotional nature of the home today? Yeah, I think we're very stuck. Because you would have had to have done that at some point in your PhD, wouldn't you, to justify Definitely. it? Yeah. Her favourite question was, so what? And it's a really good <laughs> question to ask. Um, and it's one I ask my students now. Um, so, yeah, I think, if anything, the last few months have really shown us um, why the home matters and what we have around us at home matters so much. It's been really interesting for someone who works in the history of the home to be essentially confined into that space. Throughout lockdown, we've had so much time at home, obviously not by choice as well. And so the things that we have in our home and the space of our home and the way that it's been decorated has become such a constant within our lives. Um, you know, I'm not really going anywhere at the moment. And, you know, the, my, the, my home has become my whole world, really. And we often think about the home uh, historically as a kind of microcosm for the world. And so that has really been um, helpful. And the home's role as a kind of protective space has kind of taken on new um, relevance at the moment. So we often think about the home as keeping out 
um, bad people, particularly in the past when everything was a little more dangerous, right? So that's kind of why locks become um, such an issue um, historically. And now the home is kind of renewed, taken on renewed um, protective force against coronavirus. Um, so I think our homes have re- uh, unsurprisingly become more emotional again. Um, especially as now we are kind of mourning the lack of other people in our homes as well, whether that's our friends and families as well. So I just think the home has become this uh, really kind of vexed space during the (laughs) pandemic. Do you know what's hilarious? Alina's just WhatsApp me saying unused gym equipment. And this is interesting (laughs) because didn't everybody (laughs) go so nuts when they got locked down about clearing out that I know my local dump, you could not get, you had to have an appointment and you could not get one for love nor money because everyone wanted to cleanse their home. Yeah, this is so true. And I think it's part of this response to, okay, I'm stuck in the home all of the time. I need to make this space as habitable as possible. So you see a lot of, we saw a lot of nesting particularly. Um, So people kind of clearing out, like you say, but also people engaging in these very domestic pursuits. So things like knitting, things like making bread, they're all part of this like idea of perfect domesticity, right? Where you're like a perfect housewife and you make everything from scratch. And that was partly so you didn't have to go to the supermarket so much. Yeah. Uh, um, But also it was partly about you know being in the home so much and it becoming this um this space that you're always in and you want to make as nice and as kind of quote-unquote perfect as possible these are all very homely and um, ideas and they've become yeah really important um, um recently so you can kind of think um back to the 18th century and i like to think about it in terms of um butler and ponsonby who run away from their home in ireland and set up home in wales and you know for them that was a that became a protective space which um, protected their relationship and allowed them to be who they were. So I kind of think about it in that zone. I had all the plans in the world to cleanse the flat and get rid of the clutter. And then some idiot I know rang me and went, let's start a podcast. It will be amazing. <laughs> yeah, who, who, the who is this idiot? You. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> just checking. Just checking. Yeah, 50 episodes later. <laughs> The Rise of Podcast is definitely part of this cottage industry that we've seen uh, emerge um, from people's houses. But it's, it's great. Oh, it's brilliant. What have you What have you done in your house nesting-wise? Have you Because you study it. Is there like stuff you do where you sit there and you're like, oh, I am so just a cliche of my own research right now? <laughs> uh, no, I do buy a lot of random stuff on eBay. So like cell <laughs> work and things like that. So that is my thing that I do that's bad. But I have to admit, I haven't even made a loaf of bread. I made, well, I made um, flatbreads, but I don't think that's very impressive because they don't rise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My oh, mum's the bread person, so I always go over there and get the bread from her because she's really good at it. Uh, I just wondered if either it would be hilarious if Freya had spent, like, if she came out of lockdown and she had completely covered her house in shells. She'd been buying bulb shells from eBay and had glued them to every surface. Because A lot of people tease me about that. All of that. <laughs> That would be so funny if someone came around your house and they were just like, uh, Freya, what have you been doing for the last no eight months? Nice. I don't think so. Covered in bits of super glue with the odd shell stuck to your clothes as well. <laughs> that would be brilliant. 
Freya, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us. Um, this has been really interesting because I think, like you say, we, we do go and all of us go and potter, well, all of us saddos on this podcast and people listening to it, go and potter sort of old houses and, and things and have a poke around. Um, but like you say, the big houses. So it's interesting to think more broadly in society and why this was happening and about how more stuff was coming into the home and how we sort of progressed away from basically living in two rooms that you were only in to sleep in. I guess in the Middle Ages, your, your house sort of didn't have any natural light, did it? It was just, you, you just slept there because you were out working all day. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting period for the history of the home. And it's maybe a time when the home becomes slightly more recognisable to the sort of spaces that we understand today. Although I should say that obviously we've been talking about quite elite spaces, so that's a, a caveat maybe on the episode. But um, yeah, it's a really fascinating time uh, for objects in the home and how they start to kind of mean and, and basically how people start to write to them, uh, write about them, which is uh, crucial for us as historians. Brilliant. Tell everyone about the book. It's so you've been corona affected, haven't you? Is it January now? Um, yeah, I'm not sure 100% um, because, yeah, Bloomsbury is slightly behind. But, yeah, it's coming out with Bloomsbury sometime in 2021. Um, and it's called Domestic Space in Britain, 1750 to 1840, Materiality, Sociability and Emotion. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Join us tomorrow when Dan Cazetta will be back to talk all about his time as a Secret Service agent. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.